I don't know if you're anything like me, but I don't typically like for people to tell me what to do. Uh, and uh, it seems that whenever it is something that I have a stronger desire for, the less that I want to listen to them and the more that I want to find some kind of really good excuse not to obey, especially authorities. And uh, this can have to do with uh, issues that are political in nature. Uh, they can have to do with things that are sociological in nature. It might have to do with uh, marriage or, or children, um, all kinds of issues. We find that if I am told to do something and I don't want to do it, I, I tend to press back against it. Now, we live in an age where religion is considered to be a kind of oppressive authority in the lives of others. That's kind of assumed in the way that our culture is set up, the way that people live and talk about religion. Well, in Genesis 1 to 2, we find that God has given us, in the very first pages of Scripture, an explanation of how He created us male and female and how He created man and woman to live in a uh, marital relationship for as long as they live until death do them part, and that sex is actually a part of that union that God has created. So it shouldn't surprise us that as we look at the world around us, that there is a lot of confusion. There's a lot of pressing back against the good thing that God has created, and even some claims that this good thing that God created for a particular purpose and in a particular way, and that you are a creature created by him in this way, shouldn't surprise us that we as humans press back if we don't like it. Now, this isn't our generation that has first thought to press back against this. In fact, we find it all over literature. If you look in uh, the English poet William Blake's poem, I Went to the Garden, uh, he talks about his understanding of how the, the church is really an authority that is sought to oppress us with their rules on things like pleasure and even sexuality. Here's what he says, I went to the garden of love. And I saw what I never had seen. A chapel was built in the midst where I used to play on the green. And the gates of this chapel were shut, and thou shalt not writ over the door. So I turned to the garden of love that so many sweet flowers bore. And I saw it was filled with graves and tombstones where flowers should be. And priests in black gowns were walking their rounds and binding their briars, my joys and desires." Now, I could spend a lot of time unpacking this, but what Blake is essentially saying with that language of thou shalt not, that biblical commandment type language, he is representing the church as an oppressive, man-made kind of religion that is seeking to deny life and joy through Christian morality. Do you see it? The idea is that Christian morality is actually created by man to have a kind of power and authority over man to keep you from joy and have authority in your life. Of course, this philosophy drove the sexual revolution of the 1960s, which looks a little chaotic if you ask me as we're living in the wake of it. I mean, just think about it. You, you do a Google search and you'll find all kinds of things. Men marrying dogs. Women marrying themselves. And just last week, the New York Post covered a story of a woman that was suing the government for the right to marry her adult son. 
Now, as you look at that, she's, she's calling this individual autonomy as her basic right and reasoning for the case. As we look at the nation around us, pornography is an epidemic. We are living in the brave new world the sexual revolution promised us. And recent statistics, what they show us is that as we are living in that time, we are the loneliest generation ever, and we're just getting lonelier and lonelier. Now, do you see it? We are trying to create a reality outside of what God has created, particularly thinking about sexual ethics. And what we find is, is that we are far worse than when we began. It did not make good on the promises that it made to us. See, sin is just like that. Sin is constantly making these promises to us. If you do this thing, if you disobey, it will give you a happiness that you can't have in obedience. But we find time and time again is that if we do disobey God, eventually there is a kind of pain, a kind of suffering, a kind of judgment that comes. And yet, again and again, we just kind of wash and repeat as we're disobedient to God and can't figure out why we're just more and more miserable as we seek to live our own way. What we find in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 11, where we are this morning, is that God says that judgment is not just something that is happening in the here and now and that sin is not fulfilling its promises, but there's a coming day when all of us will give an account for how we live our lives. In fact, we're in our Remember This True Knowledge series in 2 Peter 2, 4 to 10, where the apostle Peter he senses that his death is drawing near. And as it's drawing near, he wants to write to his church and future churches about his concern, his concern for false teachers. And they're really teaching a couple of things. Uh, One is that Jesus is not coming back. And and the second thing is related to that. Therefore, it doesn't matter how you live. And he's concerned that this teaching is happening then and it's going to happen later in future generations. It appears as though these false teachers were teaching some variation of what Paul spoke of, where uh, you can sin all the more that grace may abound. But here we find that this kind of brand of antinomian teaching that says you can do what you want is actually something that faces destruction. Uh, You'll remember in verses 1 to 3, just above these verses, that Peter has highlighted that there are two ways to live. You can follow the way of sensuality. That's the way of the false teachers. And that leads to God's destruction. Or you can follow the way of truth, the way of Christ. And that's a way that leads to eternal life. Well, this morning, Peter is continuing this argument with one large first order conditional if-then clause, where he's going to say if, if, if in verses 4 to 8. And you keep on warning, well, well, then what? And he doesn't give it to us until verse 9 to 10. So that's what we see today is three if statements that are going to show from the past examples of people who were living in disobedience and judgment that came, and then the then that applies to us today. So if you're writing notes, here's our big idea. Let me give this to you. You can write this down. It's that Jesus knows how to rescue the godly and keep the unrighteous for the day of judgment. Jesus knows how to rescue the godly and to keep the unrighteous for the day of judgment. That's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. Well, let's begin first with the three examples of judgment that we find in verses 4 to 8. Now, verses 4 to 8 is really just one long sentence. And 
in the Greek, we, we find here three examples that are given to us of God's judgment in the past. He's kind of mounting evidence that is building towards the conclusion that we find in verses 9 to 10. But also, I believe, each one of these episodes, it's a kind of type that prepares us for the great day of the Lord. They are foreshadowing what is to come. Now, that day will not be the same for everyone. It's going to be different for those who are in Christ from those who are outside of Christ. It really does matter how you live. But notice the first evidential if that he offers in verse 4. He says this in verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Now here he's saying if God did not spare the angels who sinned. Uh, we could spend all of our time here today, and I'm sure some of you are wishing that we would. Uh, we don't have time to do that. But most see this as speaking of one of two events. The, the first is some kind of prehistoric fall of the angels where Satan uh, and, and demons fell. Uh, the other is more popular, and it's that they are looking here, Peter is looking at a first century Jewish interpretation of Genesis 6, 1 to 4. Now, some of you are going to look there and say, like, I don't remember that. But there's a, a kind of interpretation of this that we find in the book of First Enoch. It's a pseudepigraphal book. It's not, it's not biblically authoritative. But, but it dates to around 300 B.C. Now, both of these views, the prehistoric and, and the Genesis 6 view, they both have, I think, advantages and disadvantages, both contextually and otherwise. Uh, but I, I want to give just some thoughts on this, sort of expose you to what's going on and how people understand uh, both views. Uh, now, that second view, the one that goes back to First Enoch, Enoch gives basically, in First Enoch, a narrative around Genesis 6, 1 to 4. And he's talking about the sons of God mentioned in Genesis 6. And he says that they are actually angels that he calls watchers. Uh, angels that, that looked upon the daughters of women and they came in and were seduced by those women. And they had children who grew up to be these wicked, powerful giants. Well, some of you are saying, but how does that happen? How does an angel have a, a baby with a woman? Because uh, Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two thirty, 30, right? That uh, at the resurrection, humans don't marry, they're not given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven? Well, doesn't that mean that angels can't procreate at all? Now, some say not necessarily. In fact, a, a lot of really well-respected guys, guys like Tom Schreiner, Richard Bauckham, others. But they link 2 Peter 2, 4 to those watchers in First Enoch here. And they say that Peter's looking to them. Now, they give three main reasons, as far as I can tell for this. Uh, one is, uh, this was, they say, the near universal understanding of Genesis 6, 1 to 4 during Peter's day. Uh, second is that this version would have resonated with a Greek audience that was familiar with the story of the Titans, which was similar in some ways. Uh, Jude actually refers to an event like this in Jude 6, where he mentions chains as, as holding them down and binding them. Uh, that's a popular image that you'll read if you go and read through First Enoch like I did this weekend, these, these chains. Uh, the ESV here in our text in Second Peter 
uses chains as well. But you might notice, your Bible might have a little footnote that says, some places, uh, in some manuscripts, they use the word pits instead. And you're like, what does that matter? Pits, chains, whatever, they're bound. Well, well, the point is that scholars, they largely agree that pits is more likely in the original. And later scribes probably came and they read Second Peter and they looked at Jude and they said, well, we wouldn't need to make Jude and Peter look the same. So we'll, we'll use chains here. That's probably what he meant instead and moved it to chains. Now, you could say that early translators were connecting Second Peter and Jude and that's why they did that. But I think that the point is, is that the original seems to be different than what we find in Jude. And the word for hell in Second Peter is interesting as well. It's actually the word for Tartarus, not Gehenna like you see elsewhere. And Tartarus is a, a word that you'll find in Greek mythology stories about the Titans. That was the place where they were kept. They were kept in this uh, subterranean abyss where disobedient gods and rebellious humans were awaiting a final judgment. So that's two reasons. Third, a third reason that they often point to this pointing to first Enoch is that Jude almost certainly appeals to the first Enoch account of Genesis 6, and it's unlikely that Peter differs from Jude. So they're like, well, this is what Jude's doing, so we assume that Peter's doing the exact same thing. Now, I want to make just five quick observations. A lot of you are already like, man, this is a lot. I don't even know where we're at anymore. Like, I didn't know angels could have babies. Well, let me just say five quick things as we move on. First, Peter does use language that is different than Jude, and we're not in Jude right now. So I'm going I'm to stick with Peter. And that might be punting a bit until we get to Jude, uh, but that's what I'm doing. And I think I can take Peter on his own terms. Second, Peter uses language used in First Enoch, Greek mythology, and Jude, but he in no way says all three carry equal epistemological weight. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. He is not saying, Peter is not saying, because he uses all three of these potentially, that Jude is just the same as First Enoch, is just the same as Greek mythology. Like, all the language is good. We're just going to throw it in there and see what pops out. It's not what he's doing. Only Jude and Second Peter are the sufficient scriptures, and their use of First Enoch, Greek mythology, or even a Cretan philosopher does not affirm that everything that they say in those documents carries authoritative weight. Third, I take Jesus' teaching on judgment, either in Matthew 25, 41, or... Uh, maybe a saying that Peter heard straight from Jesus as authoritative. Uh, there, Jesus tells us in Matthew 25, 41, that outside of Christ, all those who are not in him will face the same judgment as the fallen angels. And he says there, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. I think that's authoritative. There's a coming judgment. Jesus said so. Fourth, in context, Peter may be using language from both Jewish tradition and Greek tradition to help communicate the reality that if the more powerful and ancient angels cannot escape the day of judgment, neither can we. Fifth, the main point of this text isn't to confuse you with vain speculation. That's not the point of this text. It's not to cause us to chase a rabbit off into the forest like we just did but to remind us that God did not spare the fallen angels who do await the great coming judgment. 
Now, Peter's argument, it really reminds me a lot here as he talks about God not sparing the angels uh, that I recently watched. I like crime shows. And, and there was this episode that I watched recently where uh, this, this guy got caught uh, committing this sin and he was caught dead to rights really early in the show. And I was thinking, man, this is going to be a short episode. And then the, the case sort of began to unwind and it turns out that he is an ambassador for his country who enjoyed what? Diplomatic immunity. Meaning this ambassador could commit just about any crime from speeding to murder, but was immune from prosecution. See, Peter here is reminding his people that even the angels who stood in the very presence of God in heaven did not receive any kind of diplomatic immunity from the judgment. In fact, they would be joined by others who followed their pattern of disobedience. Now, there might be more here in the connections, but you'll notice in these next two examples of judgment, God also preserves Noah and rescues Lot. But there is no salvation mentioned here. Now, if you're doing typology and you're like, okay, this is a type of that, one good thing to look at is where the similarities are. Another good thing to look at is where the dissimilarities are. What's dissimilar here is there is no salvation that happens in the judgment of these angels. In fact, as you look through the Bible, you'll find there is no salvation for fallen angels. I love the observation of a 5th century commentator, Hezekiah, who observed of this text, who can understand God's love for his people? Or figure out the truth just by his own reasoning. For because of the truth, he did not spare the angels who sinned, but catch this, on account of his kindness towards us, he has allowed harlots and publicans into his kingdom. This is breathtaking news. Angels were not saved. Humans were saved. God gave a son for fallen people, sinful people. This maybe part of the reason in Ephesians 3.10 that we are told through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities and heavenly places. Now, you're like, well, what does that have to do with angels? Well, those rulers and authorities, if you read on in chapter 6, it's speaking of at least demons and likely angels as well looking on in spellbound wonder at what's happening in the church, including churches like this one. Rulers and authorities at least speaks to fallen angels. Currently, they stand in bewildered amazement that God would deliver fallen humans, but not the angels. Hebrews 2.16 picks up on this saying, For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, which speaks of those who have put their faith in Christ. They have believed God and it has been counted to him and them as righteousness. Now, here's the beauty of this. There are no redeemed angels. You have elect angels, and you have fallen angels. There are no redeemed angels in the middle. See, that ought to humble us of all of our self-estimations as we think about the judgment of God. We did not deserve to be saved or delivered. God did not deliver us because he needed us. It is only because of his own grace and goodwill that he came to save us. And shouldn't that just fill us with a sense of unworthiness and gratitude before God? 
See, Jesus did not come to save the angels, but us. Well, we've got to keep moving. Notice the second if in verse 5, where we find if God did not spare the whole ancient world, but preserved Noah. Now, I think in verse 5, we see an emphasis on the totality of God's judgment in Noah's day. It's emphasized as a type of future coming judgment. That's why you'll notice he, he repeats the word world twice, the word from, from cosmos. See, Jude emphasized destruction in a similar section, but take notice here how Peter couples the totality of God's judgment with his preserving Noah. Something beautiful that he adds in here, a pastoral kind of thought about take the judgment seriously, but, but listen, you might struggle with assurance. I just want you to know God preserved Noah. Now, here's what he says in verse 5. Here's how he says it. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now, you'll remember in Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of his thoughts, of his heart, they were only evil continually. It was, a, it was a bad day when humanity was left to themselves after the fall. Now, we could spend some time showing how sensuality marked that generation, but Peter isn't explicitly making that connection yet. See, Peter, Peter just said, if God did not spare the angels, and here he just moves on and says, if he did not spare the ancient world, he uses the same language. Now, Genesis 6 explained the whole world was wicked, but there was one man in that wicked generation that found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He is identified in Genesis 6, 9. Noah, a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and he, what? Walked with God. That, that is what set him apart in that generation. He is a man who walked with God. Peter also calls him a, a herald or a a preacher of righteousness. Noah was a preacher. Now, if you've read Genesis here, you might ask yourself, I don't remember where Noah preached. I don't remember it saying that. Well, the story doesn't say it explicitly. Jewish tradition did hold that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. First uh, Peter 3.20 might in some ways hint at that when it says that his generation of ungodly did not obey. But one, argue, one commentator from hundreds of years ago argues that Peter's preaching was not only in word. His anxious, his anxious toil in building the ark for 120 years preached a message. Just think about that. You've got Noah who is in the middle of the desert hammering away at this, this ark. How's he going to get it to the water? Little do they know the water's coming to them. And I'm sure Noah had to explain this. Looked insane. And Noah had to convince his family to build the ark. And I can just imagine if I were to come home to Benjamin, Johnny, and Jack, my sons, and said, hey, we're going to build an ark. And then I told you, we're going to use all of our finances to build a giant boat. She's like, what's a boat? Here we go. 
No having to explain, preach, talk about the judgment that is to come that justifies the building of the boat. The fact that God told him that there is a coming day that they need to be ready for. It's hard to imagine neighbors didn't ask Noah why they were building an ark in the desert when the weatherman didn't even have a category for rain yet. Interestingly, if you look closely, you'll notice in your ESB or whatever other translation you have that it mentions seven others. Uh, The Greek actually has eight. Noah was the eighth person. There were only eight people out of the whole world that were saved. That's Noah, his three sons, and their wives, and his wife. Some, as you look at this, connect this to the eighth day of a new creation. It's the same day that Jesus was raised from the dead. I don't know if that's what's going on here. But, But catch this. I'm guessing that Noah's life of obedience, building an ark, trusting that God would flood the earth, must have invited all kinds of mockery. And you can see how this would be relevant to Christians of Peter's day. Are you you hanging with me? They are trusting that Jesus is coming back, that there is a greater day of judgment coming. And it seems these false teachers are saying that's laughable. There's no judgment for sin. The world's just been kind of carrying along. Jesus isn't going to like come back and interrupt history. We can live how we want. Maybe Christians who held to the apostles' teaching of the day of judgment began to feel lonely and attacked for their faith. Maybe they wondered if they could hold themselves fast to the end. Peter reassures them that God preserves his remnant. Noah proves that God is able to preserve the righteous few amidst the pervasive judgment of God on the whole world. You know, you've probably felt this kind of loneliness before. Uh, when, when I was in high school, I still remember I had this experience where um, I began to love God's word more, and I really sensed afresh for the first time what it meant to choose between following Jesus and following the pleasures of this world. And I had this debate inside. I'm, I'm not kidding. For months, where I was saying, either I follow Jesus and it's going to be costly. Or I'm going to really live my life and have a lot of fun. Now, at this time, I thought those two were mutually exclusive. Not so fast. Not all the time. But, but at that point, I just knew that it was going to cost me something. And after some time, I chose to follow Christ. And um, it wasn't long before I remember having friends who would say, Hey, are you going to this party this weekend? And literally in front of me, the other guy is saying, Oh, he's a Christian. He wouldn't like to do what we do. And I felt, as a young Christian, the the pull of, but I want to be a part. And I had to, to really start to work through, but, but I want to be faithful and follow Christ. And that means sometimes it's going to cost me relationships. Well, you can imagine that Christians of Peter's day and Noah knew what it was to face loneliness for faithfulness. Well, these are words of assurance for struggling believers who are fearful that they're not strong enough to hold on to God through the tragedies of this life through the the lies about God that are coming our way and and the disappointments that surround us. So do you struggle with assurance because you fear that your faith is too weak? True believers who have obtained a faith of equal standing to the apostles, Peter says, they persevere to the end. And the reason they persevere to the end is because God preserves them. You hear the beauty of that? God preserved Noah. 
He didn't just pull himself up by his bootstraps. It was God who rescued and saved him. They survived the flood of God's judgment. Most don't. But those who persevere to the end are those who are preserved by God. But Paul says in Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, and you, and you, and you, that he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He is going to finish what he has begun. And you say, well, what about those who I've seen leave the faith? Great people who I respected leave the faith. Did they lose their salvation? Well, that's when we go to 1 John 2.19. They went out from us because they were not truly of us. But God never loses any of his. I know that sometimes you can feel lonely in this world, surrounded by the attacks of your faith. The great prophet Elijah felt this way in the days of Ahab and Jezebel. He says, God, I'm the only one left. Do you remember this story? It's just me. And God says, uh, no, that was Noah. I still have 7,000 people. See, Noah is a type for Christians to look to for the righteous whom God preserves through judgment. And though they might be small in number, God preserves them through his judgment. Do you see it? Peter sees God's merciful hand and unflinching gaze watching over us. The, The faithful will be vindicated by God. Now, who are the righteous? Well, they're those who have put their faith in Christ. See, true faith means we live differently when it comes to sexual ethics here in the text. That's what we find in verses 6 to 8. Notice, there we have another if. If God turned Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and rescued righteous Lot. You'll notice that Peter is comparing here the sensuality of the false teachers, which he mentions in verse 2, with that of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. Uh, Look with me again in in verses 6 to 8. Here's what he says. He says, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, He was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Here we find that God discloses and he points to a story where he discloses in Genesis 19 his plan to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because he heard the outcry over their injustice. And he tells Abraham about this in Genesis 18.23. And when Abraham hears it, he's, he's remembering Lot and, and the, the, the many humans that are living there. And he says, but God, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Because I'm, I'm worried that like you've lost your temper and you're about to go too far. So Abraham kind of haggles with God, asking, you know, God, what if I find, if you could find 50 who really are righteous, would you, would you just forgive the city and and not destroy it. Then God's like, yeah, if I found 50, I I could go there. He says, I thought you would. What about 45? What about 40? What about 35? And he haggles them all the way down to 10. And he says, yeah, if I found 10. And then God disappears. Now, when the angels show up in Genesis 19, 5 to 6 to do recon, 
They're in the appearance of men, and Abraham's nephew Lot, he takes them in to protect them from all of the people who are outside of his door. We are told both young and old to the last man are there waiting for these visitors, saying, bring them out of your house to us that we may know them. Now, they were not looking to like have a social, right? Like this is a a euphemism for more. They wanted relations with these guys. This is a wicked people. Now clearly Lot's not perfect in Genesis 19 if you read through. He offers his daughters to protect his guests, but Lot clearly looks different than the world that's around him. That's really clear from the text. He tries to protect the vulnerable, these guests, these visitors, from the whole city who's seeking to know them. But catch this. I think when we look at Genesis 19, we need to remember that this is a time in history and a city where sin and wickedness was just rampant. And the more rampant sin becomes, the more confusing life gets. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like the more that everything becomes corrupt, the harder it is to be obedient and to live a righteous life that obeys God. It gets complicated. It gets complicated quick. In fact, I was talking to Gia the other day, and she said her friends were telling a story about how they had gone to Mexico, and they got pulled over uh, because they had not stopped at a stop sign that apparently had been like buried and didn't exist anymore. And the cop said, hey, you know, um, I think I'm going to have to give you a ticket. You're going to have to go to jail. And then he paused. And he, he was like, you know, maybe there's some way we could resolve this so you didn't have to go to jail. And so they, they got some cash. They gave it to him. They let him pass on. And another one of her friends said, yeah, that's what you got to do. And it's like, well, man, this is kind of a corrupt place, right? Like you is it, is it a good thing to pay officers to like get by? Is it a better thing to go jail and don't know what's going to happen to you and your kids? Things get complex in a world that is dark. Now, I'm not trying to speak to what the right thing to do is in that situation. I'm just glad I wasn't there. But some have said the injustice of Sodom and Gomorrah was poor hospitality or non-consensual, non-consensual homosexuality, etc. There are all kinds of excuses and loopholes to sort of cordon off this greatly sinful city into something that's more manageable and understandable that doesn't really hold as much sway on our lives. It doesn't really affect or impact us as much. But notice here that Peter highlights the sensual nature of their sins. Broad sinfulness. All kinds. All kinds that step apart from that Second, that first in uh, Genesis 1 and 2 picture of what healthy relationship looks like. It's the same word that was used in 2 Peter 2 2 for the false teachers of his day. It's a word that means using sex outside of God's intended context of one man and one woman, covenant in marriage till death do them part. See, Peter's understanding of Genesis 19 is that God turned Sodom and Gomorrah to ash for their sexual sin as an example of what is going to happen in the future to the ungodly. But notice, God also rescued righteous Lot. He was, Peter says, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. Uh, Verse 7 refers to Lot as righteous three times. You remember righteous Noah? Here Lot is three times referred to as righteous. See, righteous Lot lived amongst the wicked day after day. 
It says his righteous soul was tormented by their lawless deeds. Uh, Let me ask you, when you look around the world that you're living in, and you see sexual sin, and you see different people being disobedient to God, are you tormented not by those people, but by the fact that God has been sinned against? Is it tormenting you? Or is there a sense in which when you look at sexual sin, sometimes you feel like there's something attractive and promise-giving about it? You know, I would say that we need to be vigilant about keeping our hearts and making sure that we don't lose that, that sense of that is not pleasing to God. It's not good for me. It's not healthy. I need to run away from it, not towards it. We need to protect that. Lot is pictured as a guy who was tormented by that which was all around him. Now we could go on, but, but let me just make five quick observations here. First, notice that Sodom and Gomorrah did not have the Ten Commandments. They were not part of God's covenant people. And yet, this text says that they, all of humanity, in fact, is held accountable before God for the way that they live their lives. The people of Israel, Christians, we don't believe that God is parochial, that he has some defined zip code that he's only allowed and relegated to. We believe in a God of the universe, whom all beings, seen and unseen, are held accountable before. See, God's jurisdiction, it knows no bounds. That includes every Every single zip code and every single house, and catch this, what happens in every single bedroom of those houses. See, the Ten Commandments reveals that God's purpose is for humanity to a broken world. God is trying to show what he created us for. That's why Romans 1 calls homosexuality unnatural. It's unnatural because it's not the way that God created the world. That's why you shouldn't marry your dog or someone of the same sex or yourself, or multiple people. Second, did you notice in Sodom and Gomorrah, God could not find even ten righteous men, but only one lot? Only one. And even his wife was turned to a pillar of salt as he was being drug away. It was in that moment that God is raining down sulfur and fire from heaven. He's leveling the city, bringing it to extinction, destroying everything that Lot's wife possessed and knew. And you can't imagine that you or me wouldn't be tempted to look back at all that we were leaving behind. And in a moment, she too was gone. He lost everything running towards the salvation that God brought him to. Third, there was a lag time between Sodom and Gomorrah's living it up in sin and God's inescapable judgment. Did you notice that? A lot of time between the discussion of Sodom and Gomorrah's sin, the buildup. There's even a time where Abraham saved the cities. And yet, all the while, they're living it up in sin, and they mistook God's patience as acceptance or absence. Lot was tormented day after day. I'm sure for Lot, it felt so long for God to act. And then God showed up in judgment. See, sin always leads to sorrow, but also God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah is framed is Lot's rescue from a sin-laden world that tormented him. 
God wanted something better for Lot than what Lot wanted for himself. But notice fourth, God brought them to extinction. You know, I don't think this supports annihilation or the idea that God simply gets rid of the wicked and that there is no eternal kind of living of the, the soul who is disobedient to God. Those in Sodom and Gomorrah, I, I think, face a greater day of judgment. But notice the suddenness of going from uninterrupted sin to utter destruction. I mean, we've, we've experienced how quickly life can change. Everything that you know becomes different. Maybe today you're thinking to yourself, man, I've been, I've been kind of living it up in sin and I don't see like any reason to change. And what Peter would say is, is in the blink of an eye, everything could change. And not only that, could it change? It will change. But fifth, God did not destroy the righteous with the wicked. He, he didn't do the thing that Abraham asked him not to do. God delivered one righteous man from the city of destruction. So Christian, I, I'm just curious this morning, does your heart see sin as dark? And does it, does it torment you to see others living in sexual sin? Does it break you in a sense, not just that you're like in some weird self-justifying way, angry because they're not as righteous as you are, but instead you understand that the brokenness that you see in them is actually self-inflicted misery. And you know that God wants more and better for them. You want them to get help because there's happiness that they can have that they do not know. You know, I, I have a conversations periodically with, with Gia, which is some of the, the girls that are in these foster care homes. And as she shares stories about the way that they've been abused, what it has done, it has created in me like this brokenness about the way that I see our world sinning against women, it just breaks my heart. I know that God has made them for so much more. It's not just women, it's, it's boys, it's girls, it's men. We are a broken people who need to see that God wants much better for us. It should torment us. We should long to see the day when J Jesus comes and sets things right. Because God not only cares about how someone else looks at your wife, he cares about how you think of the wives of others. He doesn't care just about the sins that you do. He cares about the sins that you think about. We need to be fixed in our hands, our hearts. They say something about our futures. That's what God wants us to see here. Those longings, those desires, those actions, they point to a future day that's coming when God is going to set things right. Because notice, second, Jesus knows how to rescue the godly and keep the unrighteous for the day of judgment. That's really the big conclusion of verses 9 to 10 that he's been proving all throughout. You'll take note that the three ifs of verses 4 to 8 are met with the one then of verses 9 to 10. Here it says, verse 9, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So two things he says here. This is the then, two things. One, God knows how to rescue the godly from trials and the unrighteous for the day of judgment. He keeps them. First, Jesus knows how to rescue the godly. So Peter is using the same word here for rescue that he used for Lot. Now, notice that it speaks of the Lord who knows how to rescue. Now, in the Old Testament, in the English, it usually translates Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, as Lord. But so often in the New Testament, we're pointed to Jesus Christ as Lord speaking to his unique authority and person. See, Jesus here is 
called Lord. He is the cosmic judge. He will judge the angels one day. He will judge every human, both living and dead, for their deeds. A day is coming where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's coming. But you might ask, when does the Lord rescue the godly from trials here? I mean, this word can mean trials or temptations. James speaks of it in James 1, 13 to 14. And there's usually a thin line between trials and temptations, you know? Uh, usually trials create a, a pretty good occasion to be tempted to disobey God. Well, I think trial here speaks of what Doug Moo says, all the challenges to faith Christians experience in this world. All the challenges to faith. So Christian, don't miss this. Jesus, he knows how to rescue you from trials just like he rescued Lot. He knows how to rescue you. Jesus is coming back as the great judge, and it matters how we live. He's coming to save those who are righteous. Now, Jesus can rescue you today. He can rescue you today, not just on the last day, but, but now. We, we find that throughout the scriptures. So, Maybe you're here this morning, and you're thinking about, like, man, we're called to be righteous. I'm not righteous. I have a history of sexual sin. What hope is there for me? Can he rescue me? Maybe today you're feeling trapped in your sin, and you feel like, I know Jesus tells me, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world, but I feel like that's bunk. I don't feel like I have the power to fight what is out there. Remember 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You know, one way of escape is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So maybe that's where you're at today. You just need to confess that you have sin that, that you need to repent of. Maybe there's, you need to do it to God. Maybe there's another brother or sister that you need to share how you've sinned against them or that you're living in sin to hold you accountable and to pray for you. But we reminded here that following a life of sexual sin leads to destruction. God wants better for us. And maybe if you're in this camp, you, you need to talk to someone here. You can talk to Jim Hughes, one of our elders who helps those with addictions. Talk to him before you leave today. You can talk to myself, another elder, another Christian. Because Jesus is our great judge, and he cares about how we live. And your life today says something about your life day, your, your last day. That means that we need to trust in Jesus' resources. So if you're thinking, like, how do I take advantage of the ways of escape? Well, there are some resources that he has put before us to help us Fight temptation and trials. So you're like, okay, what are those? Well, one is the local church. Isn't it true that in Hebrews 10, we are told that we need to consider how to stir one another up towards love and good works? That that's you helping others not give in to temptations? It's also others helping you not give in to temptations, but also encouraging you to instead do good? And, and we're not to neglect to meet one another uh, together with one another, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another all the more as we see the day drawing near. Jesus is coming back. We want to keep following Jesus. We need one another. But not only that, you need 
prayer. Jesus is today your mediator. He is the one who gives you access with the Father to bring you the help that you need. God has a ready ear to hear from you because of who Jesus is. So maybe you need to pray more. My guess is we all need to pray more. Pray more faithfully. Maybe pray longer. Pray more strategically. But we need to pray. You need to pray for others. You also have God's word. It's not just prayer in the local church, but you have God's word, which points you to Christ and his return. And you need to be sanctified until that day. And catch this, the promise that God will transform you from one degree of glory to the next until the day that Jesus returns. And you see him face to face, and we become fully what he has made us to be. You need the Holy Spirit's help. So pray and obey. And fifth, you need to fight sexual sin. You need to fight sin. It requires effort and grit. It's hard. You need help. Don't be lazy in the fight. But notice B, God knows how to keep the unrighteous until the day of judgment. That's what he ends on in verses 9 to 10. He says, here, if God has judged the angels and that flooded world of the past in Sodom and Gomorrah, he will also keep the unrighteous until the day of judgment. See, false teachers, they mistook God's patience for absence, and they missed the opportunity to repent and believe the gospel and to be saved from that coming, that coming wrath. Now, you might ask here when it says that he's keeping them under punishment, that it means that they're being punished right now until the last day. That's possible, but I don't think it's necessary here. See, the false teachers mock the day of judgment, and they seem to prosper in Peter's day. It doesn't seem like they're going through a hard time. Maybe he's talking about those in death. But I take it here to speak of that final judgment. He's keeping them. They will be judged. And did you catch the two reasons that he highlights for the judgment? Indulging in sin and despising authority. So verses 2 and 7, they've already highlighted sexual sin as a reason for God's judgment in Lot's day. And on the last day, we've already seen that Peter highlights sensuality earlier. But what is this despising of authority that he talks about? Is he speaking about just authority in general? Or maybe the authority of the apostles or the authority of a local church? I don't think so. I think Peter's actually in context referring back to Jesus as the master who bought them in verse 1. The all-authoritative Christ to whom they have given account calls them to demonstrate sexual purity and moral excellence. So catch this. Peter understands Jesus to say to you and to me and every future generation of Christians that he is sovereign over your life in every way, including sexually. Jesus and his will is sovereign over your will. That means that his wants for your life and your life in all ways are more important than your desires for yourself. Now, the the uptick to that is Jesus knows what you need better than you know yourself. He won't let you be taken away, taken astray by the lies of the world. But God desires for us, Jesus desires for us to have sexual purity and moral excellence as Jesus was and is and always will be. Now, at this point, you might think that Peter looks like he, he went to take a big swing, right, at the antinomians. Those guys who said that it doesn't matter how you live, but he overswung. 
Because it, it, maybe you're reading this and you just dropped in and you're thinking, now he's saying that only righteous people get saved and I'm not righteous. So does that mean that I don't have hope? But take note how he began this letter by speaking to a people who had obtained a faith of equal standing as the apostles. That's grace. And in Romans 3, Paul quotes Psalm 16, which is developing this idea of the righteousness of God in the scriptures. And there we're told that God looks down. And as he looks down, he says, there is none righteous, no, not one. Surveys all of humanity, there is no righteous one. None of us are righteous in and of ourselves. We're hopeless, left to ourselves. We too need God to rescue us, to pick us up like Lot and drag us out of the city destined for destruction. So if you're a Christian, know this, your problem isn't just out there according to the Bible. That you were just stuck in a wicked city and man, this wicked stuff's gonna get on you and it's gonna ruin your future. Now the, the Bible says your biggest problem isn't just out there in the city, the biggest problem that we have is in here, it's the heart. And you might be thinking to yourself, man, I've been thinking all along that the solution to all of this must be something in here to the problem that's out there. But what God says is no, it's actually, it's flipped. The real problem is in here, your heart. It doesn't love God. It doesn't want God. It doesn't want to obey God as you've been created to obey him. The, the biggest problems you have are not actually out there, but in here. And so what we need is actually something more than our own righteousness. None of our righteousnesses is enough to meet God's standards. See, that's the good news of Jesus. Jesus is God's righteous son who came and obeyed God in every way. He was sexually pure every single day of his life. Catch this, every deed, every thought was holy only and all day every day. Catch this, for you and for me, because we could not do that. And when he died on the cross, that purity is given and accounted to our, our, our account where we were sinners. And he takes our sin and he says it was paid for at the cross so that you can have a future and a hope. But Peter's understanding of the gospel is this too, hear me. That if you have been united to the morally excellent Christ, it will change you. You will be different because of it. It will transform you. It might be clunky, but it will be sure. You will be different after you meet Jesus than when you, before you met him, if you have met him. So if today you are here and you think, my life is a mess, I want you to know that you're in exactly the right place. We are a people who came from a mess, but we are destined for glory because of what Jesus has done. So don't leave without talking to someone about what it means to become part of the people of God who are ready for that last day. Don't leave without giving your life to Christ, repenting, believing, and turning to live for him because there is a day that's coming faster than any of us know when we will give an account before the whole, altogether holy and righteous son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Well, this morning we come before you praising you that you have indeed saved us. We, were, we are sinners saved by grace. Our identity as your children, as saints, as holy ones, as those who are counted amongst the righteous it's all on account of what Christ has done. And so, Father, we come before you today 
I'm sure there are many here who are struggling with sins, even those in Christ. And Father, I pray that they would be turned afresh towards hope in your son Jesus, that you would sanctify them, that you would give them back some of that conscience, that uh, conscience that, that hates sin, that hates being caught in sin because they trust that what you want is best for them, that Jesus is better than sin, that the future that he offers is better than the hope that this world offers. We ask these things in your name. Amen.